Welcome. I'm your host, Dan Platt. This is the Three Left Show. Welcome to the third super YouTube clip show, whatever. Uh, Three Left Show covers leftist analysis and perspectives for a growing uh, minds. This clip show is kind of about mindsets as well as deeping going some electoralism, um, mostly from my own perspective or just kind of these videos chart my own growth as a person and as a political actor. So first, uh, you're going to hear a red-pilling kind of video, which is about the assassination of MLK, Martin Luther King, and how it was the government who did it. Uh, as explored by a book that reports on the trial, civil trial, and uh, that kind of teased out all the evidence for it. So it's one of those like red pill question what you know, nothing is true, everything is permitted kind of uh, uh, realizations maybe. Uh, so the second one is called Feel the Poppies, and it's kind of a kind of black pilling, uh, but more activating bread pilling kind of video of, you know, this kind of don't watch the screen so much or at least don't get all of your reality from consumable media go out and engage with the world uh, that's kind of the message of that so the third one is then the third audio clip is the ideology of the seriously wrong podcast hosts aaron and sean two canadians uh, who kind of talk about exploring perspectives and ideologies or just getting out of the what they call a mind tunnel uh, that you're just kind of a limited scope and perspective and having being able to have multiple perspectives and positions at a time, nuance, maturity. But that the third clip in this program after Seriously Wrong Guys is to change anything from the crime think collective. This is a group of post-left anarchists, post-left meaning they don't really like organizations. I think that's a that's why I disagree with them. But otherwise this is a great piece of anarchist propaganda um it, they take from various different writings so it's got a, a nice little kind of flourishes to it and of course it's read by different people members of the collective so it has that nice inclusive flair so then with a, a break uh for music from everything is awesome uh from the lego movie i want to call attention to the lyric i lost my job that's a new opportunity more free time for my awesome community I kind of feel that way most of the time, as I am always just a part-time worker. In the so then uh, the next set of clips is then kind of about direct democracy. So the first is about expanding participatory democracy slash direct democracy. So it's just a good intro to it. The sixth clip is then about the facilitation and the process at Occupy Wall Street, the General Assembly. You'll notice a familiar voice, myself at the four-minute mark, as this was made by occupiers for occupiers or for the general public, and, uh, well, I contributed. Now, the GA and the Occupy process did have its problems, though I don't think it's central to the spirit and the actual practice of direct democracy. That was because of its particular informal, all-inclusive, unstructured way it existed. And also, of course, a lot of abuse happening. So the seventh one is then about sociocracy, which is the kind of more better, perfected, practiced form of consensus. Think of it as fractal government. So if you like fractals, you'll love sociocracy. But it's pretty much the better version of what Occupy did because it's kind of how you do horizontal organizations. 
So that's the first half of the show. The second half starts with a clip from a keynote speaker for the Pirate Party. So you probably need an intro to that. The Pirate Party is a set of parliamentary parties in Europe that are for internet freedom. You know, the party of internet piracy formed as kind of a bonce to the vilification of younger people doing stuff online. Hackers, it's a party of hackers, it's a party of journalism, it's a party of free speech. Kind of wish we had something like that. There were some party parties formed in America uh, that were basically a committee's worth, uh, but they did not last, unfortunately. Maybe they melded into other civil liberty groups. Uh, but certainly civil liberty groups should have their own party, and they would be the pirate party, especially as we kind of need to push back uh, on you know having a free internet uh, that isn't in mass surveillance and all that stuff. But anyway, his talk is more about why do politics in the first place, because uh, you care, the kind of, he talks of the patterns of history and how he sees himself as doing his bit, as well as being a campaigner and an organizer in a electoral party. Thus, I then uh, pivot with another clip from Czech Uger of the Young Turks. This was in 2010, and she's reacting to the congressional elections of that year, where the quote-unquote Tea Party take back the House for the uh, Republicans. Kind of. Uh, why? How? Because it, it kind of is a good reminder of how things on the national level haven't really changed that much. He comments on how, you know, the system is corrupt, but it also, what he doesn't know yet, is that the system also corrupts any progressive you actually elect. Because, you know, he speaks to how there's a need to primary Democrats with progressives, with social Democrats. That has kind of been going on the last decade with very little results. But this also goes on with how I actually thought the Greens and other movements would also be gaining steam. It doesn't feel like we have. It's fact we've actually taken a step back in the last recent years, mostly because of the Trump slash Biden election. But in, in the interim, Che Uger himself started a pack to fight political corruption, and there were other more you know liberal actors who started PACs, you know, PACs to end all PACs. We're going to fight money, corporate money with people's money. But really, you know, this wasn't really movement building. This was collecting fan, having collecting fans for a cause or a celebrity uh, or a, a good speaker and kind of misallocating people's money uh, back right into the political system as it is. So thus I continued that line with a clip from Jello Biafri, who is a punk singer from the Dead Kennedys, and a Green. And so he gives kind of gives a short talk on why he's a Green and speaks to running for local office and starting small, because that's how things actually work. The last clip is then from the UK Greens, and they kind of made this video uh, from new Greens of why they joined and some audio clips from campaigners on how they had succeeded. They've elected people to local government. Um, it helps that they have more parliamentary system, but in the UK, it's still very much two-party dominated, as a lot of even parliamentary countries kind of still have this two-sided partisan divide. 
that's kind of where it's like, well, what's the point of changing our election system? It's still going to shake out to being two sides anyway. I kind of get that. So then I follow that with an interim uh, intermission music from Jallo's band himself uh, as he does his rendition of Love Me, I'm a Liberal. So that leads us to the last kind of section of the clip show, which is discussing alternative economy, economic systems, models, how to get them, or the kind of strategies to talk about them. So the first is a circular economy. This is from, copied it, is from like a liberal foundation. So it kind of speaks, it's kind of framed as something capitalist farm, firms can do, but it also at the same time, it kind of implies complete structural change of the economy. So then a clip, uh, basically it's the shortest Paracom video I could find. Participatory economics, created by some leftist academics that I like. Most videos on Paracom are the two kind of formers of it uh, giving lectures. <laughs> Somebody actually made a kind of summary video that's in a nice comedic style, and he uses little cartoons. I actually had a kind of a short plan of making my own videos of these, and I still have the scripts, but it's just a project that I basically dropped when I started podcasting. So it's, 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 it's still, you know, I still got it, but not, not important right now. Uh, but maybe I'll jump and finish it when I kind of wrap up the show, whenever that is. No, the, la- the next one is then um, this guy calls his movement the Ubuntu, and he just kind of gives a model of how to kind of transition a town to being post-capitalist. Uh, or completely socialist, whatever we would call it, but it's definitely a communitarian, collective kind of economy. Uh, so with the last one then is the really short summary, super short tr- summary of social ecology slash, you know, the communalist um, model uh, posited by Murray Bookchin in his last work in 2009, which has been taken up and there's other books kind of explaining a democratic municipalism, the stuff used in Rojava and by the Zapatistas and other left libertarian things. Uh, so that is it. So please enjoy the show. Most everyone knows that Dr. King was a courageous Christian minister committed to the nonviolent pursuit of freedom for all people. In this pursuit, he went to jail 29 times. Nothing new so far, but prepare yourself for some stunning surprises. James Earl Ray, a petty criminal who died in 1998 and who, according to the official story, shot Dr. King, in fact did not shoot Dr. King, even though he pleaded guilty in 1969. That's right, James Earl Ray was not, absolutely without any question, not the killer. This footage of Dexter King shaking hands with James Earl Ray speaks volumes. Dexter and the other members of the King family have persevered ever since Dr. King's death to learn the truth about what happened and to make that truth known. They are convinced Ray was not the shooter. Ray's guilty plea comes about on the advice of a lawyer who approaches Ray and offers to represent him. It turns out this lawyer has connections with the true killers. The lawyer tells Ray that a guilty plea will make Ray famous and help him get off with a light sentence. Always easily led, Ray writes out what he's told to. And by the way, it's a guilty plea, not a confession. 
These facts are found in a book just out, the best single book on the assassination, An Act of State, the Execution of Martin Luther King. On the basis of the guilty plea, Ray is sentenced to 99 years in prison. Ray realizes he's been duped. Three days after arriving in the penitentiary, he moves for his guilty plea to be set aside and that he be given a trial. But stalling by government officials denies him that for the rest of his life. To his dying day, he insists he did not kill Dr. King. Pepper's book includes a full account of the extensive civil trial into Dr. King's death held in Memphis, Tennessee in 1999. That there was such a trial may be a surprise to you also. The family's suit names as defendants co-conspirators, both named and unknown. The trial is not about money. The family seeks $100 damages. The trial is about the truth. The trial lasts almost a month. Seventy witnesses are heard. A jury of six black and six white persons takes just one hour to arrive at a guilty verdict against, quote, the co-conspirators consisting of the named defendant, Lloyd Jowers, and those that the defendant named in his response, namely the United States government, the state of Tennessee, the city of Memphis, and Memphis Police Department, James Earl Ray, Earl Clark, and Frank Liberto, unquote. Earl Clark, now deceased, was the top marksman in the Memphis Police Department. Frank Liberto was a mafia kingpin. Conspirators within the U.S. government, according to the trial and the book, include, quote, J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI, Richard Helms and the CIA, and the military, unquote. The reason all this information probably surprises you is that the mainstream media effectively boycotted the trial. As Pepper writes, the silence following these shocking revelations was deafening. Like the pattern during all the investigations of the assassination throughout the years, no major media outlet would cover the story. It was effectively buried. Just six of the many facts that come out at the trial. First, when King arrives in Memphis, he's taken not to his usual hotel, which is safe for him, but rather to another, and given a room he must reach by an exposed balcony readily visible from dense bushes behind Jim's bar and grill across the street and from various high vantage points. Second fact, a special security unit of black officers assigned to King on all his previous visits to Memphis is told it's not required this time. Third fact, defendant Jowers, former owner of Jim's Bar and Grill, admits to receiving and storing a gun the day before the killing, being handed a still-smoking gun the day of, and disposing of that gun. Fourth, U.S. Army snipers are positioned on two nearby rooftops and a water tower, not, as you'd expect, to protect King, but to back up the assassin in case he misses. He does not. Fifth fact. New York Times reporter Earl Caldwell is in a room close to King's. He comes out when he hears the shot. He and others testify for the trial that they saw a man crouching in the bushes behind Jim's bar and grill. This man cannot be James Earl Ray. Reliable witnesses see Ray leave the area before the shot is fired. Fact six. The day after the killing, early in the morning, a city works crew is sent to cut down and methodically remove the bushes and all debris from behind Jim's bar and grill. The order comes from the Memphis Police Department. Whoever killed King, it was not James Earl Ray. 
He could never have coordinated such a plan or assembled such a task force, and he wasn't at the scene. He is the fall guy. But the trial, in effect, is boycotted by the media. That's why you don't know about it. That's why I didn't know about it until three months ago through James Douglas. King recognized that powerful economic forces stunt history and kill hope. It's important to understand that these powerful forces now include the mainstream media. To study Dr. Martin Luther King's nonviolent quest for social and economic justice as the surest foundation for peace is to recognize him not only as a civil rights leader, but as a man of the hour, even in these troubling days. King's life and death remain important news. The way you felt about Game of Thrones when that whole family was slaughtered, oh no. That's how I feel most days. It's how anyone feels when they turn away from the screen with such regularity and long enough to witness the most intricate, mass-scale human drama in the history of the Earth. We stand at the end of an epoch, at the end of a civilization, at the end of an empire, at the start of something else. Nobody knows what will happen in the next season, but people have got some inklings. We're moving into a new geological era, sixth mass extinction spasm. Every civilization, man, beast, plant, rock, mineral, oil, is under silent siege. Everywhere you look, billions and billions of stories, and we're missing all of them, while we stare at something that is not happening, is essentially a lie. It's all in your minds. What is happening is the planet is awash with slaves and all of them are heroes just waiting to happen. If only we'd give it some of our attention. People tell me that I carry the weight of the world on my shoulders. Indeed, that's why I beg a hand carrying it. Spread the load around. But it's not. People aren't watching. They're staring into bright lights like rabbits before impact and it freaks me out because I'm not watching Game of Thrones. I'm watching history write itself, and it's the most thrilling, exhilarating, troubling, terrifying, evocative meta-story that's ever been written. And it's happening right here, right now, in real time. The stories, the characters, the lives. You think what happens on TV is bad, you should see what my granddad had to do with knives. You should see how your iPhone comes together. Now there's some stories. We're wearing stories, slave stories, everyday new episodes. And if you did see it, you'd feel it every day. You might feel like I do. We're not so different. We're just tuned into different stations. I feel a bit alone when everyone's tuned into Game of Thrones. I feel like everyone's missing out not only on watching the greatest drama on earth unfold, but to participate in it, to script it ourselves. While we watch the screen, the directors prime the scene, and it's a very interesting scene. 
and we think the plot is so complex, not really up to us to figure out. But actually, it's just all the background noise getting in the way of some very simple things. Slaves, prophets, cunning as foxes in a henhouse. Sweet deal. There's a ruse going on. It's part of what makes the plot so exciting, fascinating, creepy. And the ruse is not so elaborate. It's simple. Flash a light in their faces while you round them up for labour. Keep them distracted while you steal the land out from underneath them. Justify the acquisition in a foreign dialect. Take by stealth and not by siege. Capture the people intact and have them do your work. Sabotage those who resist. Kill them if you have to. It's in the killing where things get really interesting. A whole lot of killing going on. Lots of stories. The feelings. If I'm the only one I know tuning into this show, is it really happening? I tell you where it's up to and you look at me as if I'm crazy, like, where do I get all this stuff from? These ideas, these opinions, these projections. What really freaks me out, and a lot of you do this, is when you look me in the eye and say, it's not happening. The conspiracies, the theft, the propaganda wars, the homicides, the homicides, the homicides, the homicides, the lies, a colossal interspecies genocide, a holocaust, not happening. Tinfoil hat, conspiratard, feminazi, luddite, greenie, hippie, feral, extremist, terrorist. Sheesh, man, I'm just watching the show. Game of Thrones is not actually happening. Puppies. Puppies will make them sleepy. Stare into the lights, my pretties. Uh, Operation Mind is, uh, is a form of guerrilla ontology. It's a group effort involving many people, and it is an attempt to galvanize the minds of many uh, readers 
and television viewers and moviegoers to suddenly see the world in a new way. I always feel like I have multiple simultaneous reactions to things, and then the, the art of living is like choosing which one of these reactions to channel at any given time. That's a different way of expressing the main idea of our podcast, validating different views of reality. I feel like a lot of people pay lip service to that, but then to actually internalize that and to actually see things simultaneously from multiple different worldviews to concurrently hold multiple different worldviews inside of you is an art. I'm not sure if there's ever been a time in history before now where there's been access to ideology. Like the concept of ideology as a thing of which there are multiples and... Yeah, like for me to do research on communism right now doesn't put me on a list. You probably do have a communist tag on your name yeah, in the but... NSA database. <laughs> yeah. so. And membership in Operation Mindfuck is not secret. It's just once you understand what Operation Mindfuck is, if you are a writer or a director or otherwise involved in the entertainment literature, theater game, you just automatically become a member if you're sympathetic to it and Operation Mind scrolls merrily alone and since it is no centralized conspiracy, nobody can ever stop it because there's nobody giving the orders. If this is really a historically original time where access to ideology, access to the concept of ideology and just being like, okay, each of those things is an ideology and there's not just two or three there's tons of different ones and like flavors of them and just getting that bird's eye view if that's a historically unique thing to our information culture how that will affect the culture is incredibly profound at least that how it's affected me has been incredibly profound and if it became a widely adopted thing i just can't imagine how this world wouldn't look radically different for the better we talk about people doing lip service to the idea of there being validity and lots of different perspectives but not really doing the work that it requires to translate them and mix them i think empathizing with them just i want to emphasize that like that's yeah. like the, you can understand it as well as you want but you have to feel where they're coming from yeah if your in-group is everyone and it's humans you've got a lot we, we've all got so much more learning to do <laughs> to to be able to actually talk to them I feel like if we can click in our brain and make the choice to always value more information, even if it isn't what we already think or isn't it what we want to think, hearing more perspectives is an inherent good because it stretches our personal idea of the, the realms of possibility. And that is one of the functions of this information culture movement that I think is happening right now on Earth. Even though there's no leaders, I think there's a political shift and a religious shift, a worldview shift that's coming with the access to information that we all have because our perceptions of the possible are being stretched and the farther we understand real possibility to extend to, the more we're going to be able to build these bridges and create a world that is collaborative. Create the, the world peace and the utopia that we all I keep using that phrase and then being like, oh, maybe I shouldn't say that because someone's going to be like, oh, I don't want that. But um, yes, you do. <laughs> yeah, I would, I'd honestly, I would honestly argue that the conclusion that we would come to as a group if we committed to positive regard for each other and trying to build these bridges actively and not putting up these out-group walls, that we would actually all head in the same direction. If we had an ideological babblefish. A little computer that will translate from any ideological background, for example. You damn dirty hippie kids, stop playing hacky sack in the park and go get a damn job. 
I'm worried that you're not valuing the community enough. You know what, man? You capitalist pig. You can go to hell for all I care. All you care about is your profits, man. You should... Oh, oh, you really fire me up, bro. I'm worried that you're not valuing the community enough. Translate perfectly between different ideological speaks so that people are like, oh, I totally get the spirit and the, the best possible interpretation of what you're trying to say. There are sayings related more to right-wing or more empowerment messages that I don't want to like equate right-wing with empowerment. But there is, there is an overlap. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, sure. but where they'll say things like the pie can always grow. It's an abundance perspective almost. Like if, if you work hard enough, anyone can achieve a piece of the pie that's big enough for them to get what they want. And then people on the left will look at the pie and say, okay, no, wait, there's this much pie right now, and we got to make sure that everybody gets their fair share of the pie. Pie here, of course, representing, you know, basic living needs, biosurvival, food and water and education and parks and streets and, and, you know, just infrastructure and clean drinking water. And I want to support both of them. I want to support the idea that the pie can grow and that people can make their own pies. And I want to support the idea that the fact that some people aren't getting enough pie, even though there is enough pie for everyone, is not good. And as a community, that's something we should work out how to share it with the people who, because of systemic factors, aren't able to make new pies right now. I want to have this super optimistic view that even if there are these crazy structural problems, like the way that all these issues have crept in is like just through these weird reinterpreting of language oh the fourth amendment that you can't be searched doesn't apply to us storing all of your phone records and phone calls we're we're not searching it we're just storing it just like this creative reinterpretation and i want to have a lot of faith that our generation can take this system and maybe without revolution just using information and creative reinterpretation turn it into something awesome and beautiful and maybe that's through voting some people in and like other structures simultaneously uh doing different things and i will be very vague about it and if anything positive happens in the future i will take credit for it i agree with you i I really like what you said about creative reinterpretation it being an essential part of the real revolution if you're like allow yourself to be creative and have fun with the idea of other perspectives it's so fun to talk to someone who really believes things that you don't the idea of infophobia versus infophilia either enjoying and relishing new information or fearing new information i feel like through following all of these paths simultaneously i find the places where they intersect and i think i'm able to see the individual strains in a clearer way in the context of having multiple strains of understanding. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, the, uh, the culture shapers uh, are becoming part of Operation Mind, and the whole world is having its mind. And I'm very happy that I can play a humble part in this noble endeavor. Humanity is locked in an asymmetric conflict with the institutions of authority. The more powerful they get, the less capable we are. The more glory accrues to them, the more impoverished we become. 
the more riveting their spectacles, the more paltry our realities. The more stable their structures, the less stable our lives. The problem is not the people in authority, but the institutions themselves. No matter who holds the reins, they produce the same petty indignities and power imbalances. It's not that they are broken, this is just what they do. No piecemeal reform could fix them. We have to rethink everything according to a different logic. To change anything, start everywhere. When a war goes on long enough, it becomes invisible. We no longer see how militarized our society has become. The borders, the security checkpoints, the ranking systems and disciplinary measures. Instead of power over our lives, we have the rule of authority. What's the difference between power and authority? The workers who perform the labor have power. The bosses who tell them what to do have authority. The tenants who maintain the building have power. The landlord, whose name is on the deed, has authority. Armies have power. Generals have authority. A river has power. A permit to build a dam grants authority. There's nothing oppressive about power itself. Many kinds of power can be liberating. The power to care for those you love, to defend yourself and resolve disputes, to perform acupuncture and steer a sailboat and swing on a trapeze. There are ways to develop your abilities that increase others' freedom as well. Every person who acts to achieve her full potential offers a gift to all. Authority over others, on the other hand, usurps their power. And what you can take from them, others will take from you. Authority is always derived from above. The soldier obeys the general who answers to the president who derives his authority from the constitution. The priest answers to the bishop, the bishop to the pope, the pope to scripture which derives its authority from God. The police officer answers to the superiors just as the judge derives authority from the law and corporations derive theirs from the dollar. Manhood, whiteness, property, at the tops of all these pyramids, you don't even find tyrants, just social constructs, ghosts hypnotizing humanity. We will never have power on our own terms so long as we seek it through authority. In hierarchies, we only obtain power in return for obedience. Power and authority become so interlinked that we can barely distinguish them. Yet without freedom, power is worthless. Without authority, people have an incentive to work out conflicts, to earn each other's trust. Trust centers power in the hands of those who confer it, not those who receive it. Relationships built on trust are more likely to be mutually beneficial. Person who has earned trust doesn't need authority. If someone doesn't deserve trust, why should he be invested with authority? And yet, whom do we trust less than politicians, CEOs, police? There are many different mechanisms for imposing authority. Some require a centralized apparatus like the court system, others can function more informally, like gender. Some of these mechanisms have been completely discredited. Who still believes in the divine right of kings? Others, like property rights, remain so deeply ingrained that we cannot imagine life without them. And yet, all of them only exist on account of our collective belief. They are real, but not inevitable. 
The existence of slumlords and executives is no more natural, necessary, or beneficial than the existence of emperors. It's not a question of fairness. As long as these mechanisms concentrate power, most of us will wind up on the losing end. All the revolutions of the 20th century only secured the right to be bossed around by someone of your own color, class, and creed. The challenge is to create spaces in which no one can accumulate power over others. How could we regain control of our lives? Governments promise us rights, but they can only take liberties. Anything they're powerful enough to guarantee, they're powerful enough to take away. Markets just reward us for fleecing our fellows and others for fleecing us. The only sure way to secure the things we care about would be to build leaderless mutual aid networks capable of self-defense. Doing without the state wouldn't mean ceasing to provide for those in need. It would mean helping each other directly instead of feeding a bureaucracy. Doing without property law wouldn't mean you would lose your possessions. It would mean that no sheriff or stock market crash could take away the things you need. If it weren't for state-imposed property rights, our relationships to things would be determined by our relationships with each other. Today, it's the other way around. Our relationships with each other are determined by our relationships to things. We want to abolish domination altogether, not to manage its details more judiciously, not to swap out who inflicts and who endures, not to stabilize the system by reforming it. Rather than calling for more legitimate rules or rulers, let's find our own strength and learn to use it together. Even those who simply wish to exert leverage on the authorities must admit that the most effective way to do this is to develop the power to act autonomously. But it would be better still to set our own agenda on our own terms. Our wager is that in standing up for ourselves, we will find others who do the same, and our struggles will unlock new possibilities for our lives. Win or lose, this path offers the richest experiences and relationships that are possible today. In a world ruled by petty despots, it produces heroes. In a time of predictable routines, it inspires adventures. In the face of the humiliations of modern life, it offers us our dignity. To change everything, start anywhere. If any of this resonates with you, you may be an anarchist.
awesome. Dip my body in chocolate frosting. Three years later, I shot the frosting. Smelling like a blossom. Everything is awesome. Step in mud, got new brown shoes. It's awesome to win and it's awesome to lose. Awesome to lose. Awesome to lose. Awesome to lose. Representative democracy needs to connect citizens in more imaginative and modern ways. And at a time when the rhetoric about the devolution of power is commonplace, the use of more participatory and deliberative methods to engage citizens in decision-making processes is key. There are a number of ways in which more deliberation and participation can strengthen representative democracy. Citizen participation brings in perspectives and information that experts and elites do not have leading to better policy outcomes. Citizen participation in decision-making helps smooth implementation by increasing legitimacy. If people are involved in making decisions, they have more ownership and can help ensure that decisions are implemented and adhered to. Citizens benefit experientially through participating. The skills, attitudes and confidence that come from this learning on the job fuels future participation. Deliberation across difference and diversity can break down prejudice and build mutual trust and understanding. Inspired by innovation driven by civil society from across the globe, democratic systems and parliaments in many countries are becoming more open to new ideas that give both voice and power to citizens. Some examples include participatory budgeting schemes, deliberative polls and citizens' juries. And the internet has also become an important tool to engage citizens in decision-making processes. Participation, whether in the form of campaigning, demonstrating, taking part in public meetings, or developing solutions to societal problems is the bedrock of civil society. Democracy in the UK and Ireland was created in large part by pressure from civil society. Think of the Chartists and the Suffragettes. And more recently, civil society drove the creation of the Scottish Parliament. All over the world, too, the spread of democracy, not merely in form, but in habits of argument, deliberation and scrutiny, is driven by civil society. Civil society groups have important characteristics that set them apart from corporations and governments. They are more trusted, perceived to be independent and of greater reach. 
They can connect to a more diverse cross-section of citizens, including people at the margins. And they provide platforms for dissenting views to be voiced. While government rhetoric of devolving power and citizen participation is now strong, especially through the big society narrative in the UK, the Commission report Making Good Society highlights that civil society needs to remain vigilant and active on a number of fronts. If more decisions are to be made locally, investment must be made in quality local news media. Without it, citizens will not be able to make informed decisions, to convey and understand local needs, or to hold powerful organisations to account. Poverty and inequality must be tackled to not only create a more equal playing field, but also to allow for more participation. Expecting people on the breadline to share, participate and cooperate as equals is unreasonable unless efforts are also made to create the conditions in which this is the safe and rational thing for them to do. Rights to dissent and civil liberties must be protected. Governments and civil society need to work together to minimise the impact of legislation, including anti-terror legislation on rights to expression, assembly and association. This needs to be done not just in the interest of democracy in more developed countries, but also in the interest of more fragile democracies around the world. And finally, more needs to be done to strengthen people's deliberation skills. These include the skills of active listening and rational argument. We need to equip people from all walks of life with the skills and attitudes for collective participation. Essentially, it is now impossible to imagine plausible answers to society's most pressing challenges without a widened role for civil society that enriches, strengthens and challenges representative democracy. People ask all the time, like, who are the leaders? Like, well, none, none of us are leaders and we're all leaders, exactly the same. without the process. The only way that you keep people involved in a movement like this is you have a process in which everyone's voice can be heard. The consensus process. In our movement, it's really important to have our means reflect the ends that we're trying to create. We want to have more representation in our government and in our economy. So in trying to create that, every decision has been made through our process of general assemblies and through our process of working groups.
that is given to you from a bishop or a president, your investment in it usually relies on how much you profit from it, you know? Here, everybody works together to come to a decision. Because it's not top-down, it can take much more time, but in the end, the decision being voted on, it's so much stronger because everyone has worked out all the little kinks to come up with the best thing that everyone can support together. And that's the beauty of direct democracy, is being able to say, okay, we need to come as a group and adjust so that everyone's on board with what's happening. Because if we leave one person out, that starts to jeopardize up the chain, leaving people out for the larger movement. Stack is the order in which people speak. So if you have something to say, you get on stack and then eventually you, what you have to say will be heard because you will be on a list that someone is very carefully keeping. Right now for this meeting, I'm actually taking stat. So basically, uh, people raise their hand, I'll come up to them, put them on stat. I got here Wednesday. I was welcomed with open arms. I just went to a facilitation training and now I'm taking stack at a GA. I want to <clears throat> actually facilitate a GA, uh, but my voice is gone because I've been a human mic for the last four days straight. All of this is overseen by a group that anyone can join called Facilitation, and they do trainings on how to be part of sharing this process in a way where it's unopinionated, allowing all the voices to be heard. But you don't have to come here to be part of this. You can start it wherever you are, which is a great thing. And yeah, this is amazing. these hand signals instead of clapping or yays and nays to avoid interruption. When you want to show support to something that you're hearing, you twinkle. Then there's, uh, I'm, I'm okay with it, but not really. And then I disagree. This, which is the point of process, when someone is getting off topic. Louder means we can't hear you. Clarifying questions. If someone has a point of information, they'll throw up a finger. This is the block. If you make a block, it means you're, it's, you're so disagreeable to it that you will actually leave the movement or the working group um, if that's agreed upon. I actually stood up in front of the entire General Assembly and did block a proposal that was going through. And blocks are a serious thing. You should probably only block something once or twice in your life. The declaration of Occupy Wall Street was being discussed. So I was reading it over with my friends, who are also all South Asian, happened to be, and we were like, this isn't going to be something that we're going to be able to take back to our communities and say like, hey, come down here. Because we know a lot of people who are going to feel alienated by this. And it was one of the scariest moments <laughs> I've had. Because, you know, I was saying that in front of like hundreds of people who are on like my side. But it was taken on. We changed the line to something that I think reads a lot more inclusively. Now we're going to move into, now we're going to move into small breakout groups. Small breakout groups. People come to a consensus meeting in the attitude of, I want to make a decision that everybody is comfortable with. I want us to all agree on something. Because I know what it's like when somebody honors my viewpoint when it comes to an unpopular place, I rejoice in the opportunity to honor somebody else's very different viewpoint. And there have been some decisions made that maybe I don't agree with. But 
because I was part of the process and because I saw how it was made and I saw how good the intentions were, I honor the decision even if I don't agree with it. We're all good. No, no more concerns? Are there any more concerns? Okay. Um, I just want everyone to know that it's 5.06 right now. We have a lot more stuff to get through. Um, and for everyone to keep that in mind. Um, anybody else have I'm going to put out two points is that once it's messy and it's complicated and it's slow sometimes but you have to be willing to take that on it's in the nuance of things and in the deep hashing out of things where everyone feels represented and heard which is the only way that we can actually change a system I think an entirely different way of thinking that is more inclusive than it's working. And I believe that even if we aren't at the right place now, that using the process of consensus will bring us to the right place in the future. The process is meant. The process is meant. So you can be empowered. So you can be empowered. To go to your own communities. To go to your own communities. You want to make a difference, and you want to make a difference together. Working together, getting things done, can be fun. We long for that experience. You can be effective and open in a way that respects everyone in your group. You want your group to make decisions fast, to hear everyone's voice, and to enjoy success. Sociocracy came from the Netherlands and has spread all over Europe, the U.S., and the world. It is an established tried and tested governance system ready for you to use. Some people prefer to call it dynamic governance. Let's look at how decisions are made in sociocracy. An issue will come to a working group. So uh, I was contacted because there was an issue. With the group will create a full picture of what is going on. They will follow a process to come to a proposal that takes everybody into account. In sociocracy, we want all voices to be heard. One tool to do that is to talk in rounds. Rounds make it easy for people to speak, and since you know you will be heard, rounds also make it easier to listen. We want to make good decisions and have all voices and concerns get equal consideration. Okay, I think we covered everything. Yeah, and I think this should work for everyone too. Decisions are made by consent. We ask, is this proposal good enough to try out? Does anyone object to the proposal? Not everyone gets their personal preference. We figure out a way to improve our proposal until it is good enough and everyone can consent to it. 
the whole group takes responsibility for the objections and seeks to address the underlying concerns. So let's see if we dealt with all objection and do a consent. I consent. No objection. No objection. I consent. Consent. No more objections. Um, I don't have any objections, so it looks like we have consent. In sociocracy, we call the working groups circles. Each circle has an aim, a shared purpose. Circles make decisions about responsibilities that are in their domain. The people who actually do the work together decide together. They know best what needs to happen. They do the work. They see what works and what doesn't. Let them make the decisions. How do we make a whole from the parts? In sociocracy, we do this through linking. Every circle has a leader and a delegate. The leaders and delegates of the department-level circles together form the general circle. Information can now flow back and forth through the entire organization. The leader typically lets the circle know the overall operational plan and what needs to be done. The delegate makes sure the department circle's experience is heard in the general circle. We call this the double link. Subcircles are also double linked. That way, we get maximal transparency and efficiency throughout the whole organization. When decisions are put into practice, it is often thought as a one-way street. However, in order to get closer to our goals, we have to make sure we measure the outcome of our decisions in order to find out if what we're doing is actually working. We can only get better if we listen to what needs improvement and what is working well. When we decided this, we totally forgot to take into account. The circle may decide to revise their policies and practices, or the circle might decide to extend the feedback process by involving other circles, like their mother circle or a helping circle, to get more input on how to make a decision that is within the range of tolerance of everyone who is affected. We can continually adapt to our changing world. We don't get stuck. Everybody can have their voice in this. And we will always work something out that everyone can consent to. More people can participate deeply. Our circle structure helps us to be effective. And fully transparent in our organization as a whole. Not everything will be perfect right away. But if we keep experimenting, our organization as a whole will get better all the time. If you're inspired to introduce sociocracy in your organization, we can help. This video condenses the anarcho-communalism of Murray Bookchin, found in his book Free Cities, Communalism and the Left, 2009, his final work. Bookchin describes communalism as a form of organization which, quote, seeks to create popular assemblies as vital decision-making arenas for civic life, end quote. This video provides Bookchin's view of how anarcho-communalism addresses six aspects of society. 1. Order. 2. Market. 3. Property. 4. Structure. 5. Decision-making. 6. Means of production. Order. Bookchin says, quote, we would enjoy freedoms, or rights, but we would also have responsibilities, or duties. He objects to individual autonomy exercised without reference to social responsibilities. Market. Bookchin favours, quote, the sharing of goods according to a truly libertarian view, end quote, rather than an exchange of surplus goods or anything like commodity purchase or exchange. Property. 
Under Bookchin's communalism, property, quote, will be municipalized and its overall management placed in the hands of popular assemblies, end quote. He differentiates this from nationalization, collectivization, and privatization. Structure. Bookchin says, quote, communalists seek to create a democratic collectivist social order, end quote. Popular assemblies manage commonly owned property, and administration is coordinated by, quote, confederal committees whose members are the responsible voices of the popular assemblies, end quote. Bookchin's communalism, quote, requires a written constitution and, yes, regulatory laws to avoid a structurelessness that would yield mindless anarchy, end quote. Decision-making. Bookchin's communalism requires that, quote, each individual would act with full regard for the needs of all, and that democracy decidedly includes the rights of a dissenting minority to freely and fully express itself, end quote. Individual assemblies confederate with each other, and, quote, the popular decisions of the entire confederation are taken as a single assembly, end quote. Means of production. Bookchin argues for, quote, a system of usufruct based entirely on one's needs and citizenship in a community, end quote. Under this system of common ownership, quote, no one individual controls, much less owns, the means of production and of life, end quote. Bookchin's communalism, therefore, starts with small municipal communities which confederate in order to scale up and which use direct democracy to make decisions. We've certainly come a long way. We've certainly come an enormous way since, since we first met in Vienna, Austria in 2007. I'd like to dedicate this quite emotional closing keynote to one of the organizers of the 2007 event, who sadly is no longer with us. Florian Hofsky was the founder of the Austrian Pirate Party and one of the most emotional and inspiring people, people I have ever had the privilege of getting to know. So Florian, in loving memory. Why are you here? Seriously, I, I mean that's a serious question, why are you here? Are you dumb? Are you stupid? Everybody knows, everybody knows how you change the world. We've all learned that. You write a letter to the editor in your local newspaper, and you're happy if they publish it, and so you've done your little bit of changing the world. Who is out of their mind and actually goes to start a political party and think they can accomplish something? Are you dumb? Let me know. L let me tell you why I'm here. 120 years ago, a couple of young activists thought it was unjust that according to the establishment, you should obey the king and the church. And that they thought that individuals had certain rights that the king and the church really couldn't trample on. So they, they started to form a movement, and at that point, everybody demanded an answer of them. 
Come on now, you've got to take a stand here. Do you prefer more power to the king or more power to the church? And, but these people that were forming a political party, liberals as they call themselves, said that you don't understand. We're bringing new ideas to the table here. I think we're, we're going to form a political party and contest the elections. And the establishment went completely insane, saying, you can't form a political party just because you don't want to obey the king. Are you out of your minds? You're just spoiled brats who want everything for free. Well, they said, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Let us explain. And so around 1890s, liberals went headway into many parliaments in Europe and established ideas like voting rights for all and certain inalienable rights for the individuals that hadn't been there before. That was 120 years ago. Fast forward 40 years, and a couple of young activists thought they saw something unjust in society. They started to think that, that maybe they had certain rights as workers that weren't really respected and uh, confirmed by the establishment. Maybe if they organized, maybe they, they could get certain ideas through that was for the better of all society. And at that point, the uh, king and the church were no longer one and the same, were no longer opposite poles on the political spectrum. They had become conservatives. And the liberals, that appeared 40 years ago, was the new opposite. So the establishment went to these new politicians, as they dared call themselves, and asked, okay, so you've got to explain here. You've got to take a stand. Are you with the conservatives or the liberals? And the workers' movement said, that, well, it's not really that simple. We, we sort of bring new ideas. And when they finally founded a party, the establishment went absolutely insane, saying, you can't start a new party just because you want higher wages. Are you out of your mind? You can't do that. You're just spoiled brats who want everything for free. Well, they said, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Let us explain. That was 80 years ago. In the 1930s, labor, labor parties and social democratic parties came into parliaments pretty much all over Europe. Fast forward another 40 years, 40 years ago. This was a time when petrochemical companies were the heroes of all mankind. If you invented new chemicals, you got medals out of the king's hand. And progress was holy word. Progress for the industry. And escape was seen as a filthy, dirty word that maybe something you did in the dark when people didn't see. In this day and age, 40 years ago, a couple of long-haired hippies arrived on the scene and said that, you know, maybe we should invent less. Or at least that was what the establishment heard. Maybe we should work less. And... They even went so far as to found a political party around these ideas after having driven it for a while. And the establishment went all mad. Are you out of your minds? You can't, can't found a political party because you want to work less. You're just spoiled brats who want everything for free. Well, they said, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Let us explain. 
If it's something we learn from history, it is that it tends to repeat itself over and over again. I'll tell you why I'm here. I'm here because I think that there are some things that are unjust in this world. I have chosen to become a politician, not because I want to, but because I feel that I have to. There are things that I think are very unfair and unjust. And I think that the younger generation is being exploited and demonized in a way that it doesn't deserve. And I think that many people in the establishment doesn't understand this. And I think that I have to do something about it. I'm not sure what I can do, but I am going to do what I can. And that's why I am here. History is repeating itself. And we are getting the exact same treatment as all people have done before us. Every 40 years, a new generation needs to reconquer democracy. So, I mean, it's hard. It's really hard. The industry lobbies, both for the security industry and the copyright industry, have wheelbarrows of cash. They, they can basically just take in this wheelbarrow with lots on, and lots of cash in it and see politicians grab, grab a little here and a little there and be, generally have a good time while doing so. So how do you beat that? How can you possibly beat this the immense amount of cash and power that we have stacked against us? Well, it turns out you can do that. Just like the Greens did, that was stacked against the petrochemical industry that is still 40 years later the richest on the planet. It turns out you can do that. Like the workers' movement did, which had every single factory owner on the planet against them. But there is one thing that beats all of this. There is one thing, one thing only, one thing only but there is one thing. That's votes in a democratic election. The many count more than the rich. The many count more than the powerful. And that's why we will win, just like the movements before us. We know that we are right. We know that the world as it looks is unjust. And we know that a whole generation is being mistreated. And not just one generation for that matter. So, what, what happens is that we need to make this personal for the politicians who don't care. Or don't realize that they should care. They're not evil people. They, they just haven't seen what's going on. You sh we, it's, we owe it to them to give them a chance to understand what is happening right now. Because they're not evil. They just, hasn't, they just haven't seen this perspective. And unfortunately, they're not taking a lot of interest in this issue. But there are ways to get their attention. You can take their jobs. That gets their attention. Uh, unfortunately, it's one of the few ways that does get their attention. So, it actu it's actually enough just to threaten to take their votes. Once you start chipping away at, at the polls, they will start to realize that there's something here they haven't understood. 
That's actually how it works. And once they realize that there's something they haven't understood that people feel deeply about, they'll start to try to dig into that. So imagine, imagine we were in an election and we came just 1,337 votes short of a place in parliament or seven places, several places in parliament as is, there's the threshold in many places. We would be so disappointed, we wouldn't believe it, but what would all the other politicians think at that point? Every single other politician would have one and just one thought in their head. They're getting in the next time. I better adapt and fast. This is how it works. The instant we start taking votes, and we are, we start changing the world. And we are. We are. The Pirate Party has a visibility way above its size because people see it, see that we are a growing phenomenon. When I give keynotes on the other side of the planet, in San Francisco, in, in Southeast Asia, I frequently begin by asking, okay, how many in here have heard about the, the Swedish Pirate Party before? I actually say Swedish. So the Swedish Pirate Party before, show of hands. I say, okay, so, but you don't need to raise your hand. I know you've heard of us, Gregory. <laughs> You, about between half and two-thirds raise their hands. And then, just, just for the kicks and lulls of it, I say, okay, so how many have heard of any other Swedish political party? Let's see a show of hands. And then what happens then is that everybody takes their hand down, starts looking around and laughs. And I mean, this happens in Europe as well. I mean, you'd, you'd think they've heard of the Social Democrats or Greens or something like that, but they, they don't think of them. So why is that? It's because... We are the next generation's civil liberties movement. And people have heard that. People have heard of us. We have a visibility and awareness that it goes way beyond our actual size at this point. And, well, there is this concern that in many cases we aren't taken seriously. And people sort of feel uncomfortable with that and start looking for reasons that Maybe it's our geeky statue. Maybe it's the name. Maybe we need to have more te television time. Maybe, well, you know, I think we deserve it. I think that's only fair. I think we are being treated just like any new political party is being treated. It's not our name. It's not that we, don't, that we aren't seen on television. Every single new movement before us was treated just like this. And it may not be fair but it's the way the world works. If you have a new party coming in a country, they will be met with skepticism until they have proven themselves. It's not our fault. We just have to hang in there, just like we are doing. And it also, it's useful here to remember that the Greens weren't taken seriously even after they were in Parliament. I mean, for heaven's sake, there were hippies with long hair and rubber boots. How would you expect them to be taken seriously among a bunch of suits and ties and stiff upper lips who walk around? And they're kind of cool, man. I mean, think of a local council. A local council that would put up a factory somewhere. And all of these stiff ties and 
okay, I shouldn't do that with a microphone because it's going to sound terrible. Oh, with stiff ties, suits, nice polished shoes, splashing around in the mud like this, looking at this new plant site somewhere, somewhere in the field, and thinking about how to put public, public transport there and where the workers will live and all of this, like normal city planning, which is part of, after all, the local council's job. And while they're splashing about in the mud with their polished shoes, not pretending they are, of course, all of a sudden comes one of these local hippies. Long hair, hat, rubber boots, staring eyes. Okay, so how will this affect the local environment? And this, these people from the local council just go ballistic. You got to stop this hippie nonsense about the environment. This is a factory. This is about jobs and the economy. It has nothing to do with the bloody environment. Well, that's a really nice river, man. We're sometimes... People sometimes disrespect us because we're geeks. We're we're, we come from a technical background. Well, that's why we understand how technology is reshaping society. The Greens came from professions wh which had close ties to nature. Biologists, field researchers. That's why they were hippies. That's why they had rubber boots. And that's why people didn't understand that they were for real even after they were in Parliament. So we shouldn't take that too seriously. It's the other people that will discover just how serious we are. Also, it helps us that we are working on global issues. I mean, when you have something like WikiLeaks, like the Pirate Bay, like something... What we are working on is things that, that's things that are covered in the entire worldwide press. And what happens in, in, in the worldwide press when the Pirate Party does something is that the Pirate Party of Italy did this, or the Pirate Party of Switzerland was helping out WikiLeaks, or the Pirate Party of Sweden is saying that they'll host Pirate Bay in Parliament just for the kicks of it, which we did. What happens is that this is printed in every newspaper around the world. And that helps the local pirate party. We have this huge advantage where everything we do is helping everyone else. And somewhere, I think that's who we are. We are here because we believe in helping others. We believe that you should help those who will never ever in their life be able to repay the debt. We believe that helping others is part of what makes us human. Sharing is caring. In this world, there are leaders, elected leaders and non-elected leaders, who try to beat the drums of war, who try to demonize another kin, another kin of human beings, as some, somehow being less worthy, somehow being aggressive, wanting to go to war, so we must defend ourselves. We've seen it happen so many times. 
what we are defending and what's happening right now is that we discover, we're discovering that we can talk to these people. When I see lines in Arabic in my browser or in Twitter, it just flashes by and then tra is translated into words I can understand. And what I'm realizing is that these human beings are just mothers and fathers who, who love their children, who, I'm sorry, who want to put nice, nice food on the dinner table and who are just like us. They don't want to go to war. The best they can hope for is to make it home alive. Our leaders have lost the capacity to lie to us and what we are fighting for is something that will never give them that ability again. Never, ever. We are fighting for the right for people to communicate with one another without distortion by authorities, without in intervention by authorities. And that has helped me discover so much, so much humanity in places I haven't expected it. So, a couple of practical tips to, to, uh, to wrap this up. We know what we stand for. We need to own the issues. And by owning issues, I mean whenever a reporter is writing a story about something, you should, they should call us. They should call the Pirate Party and ask for, and ask for our comment on this story. We're already there in some issues. I mean, we're the file-sharing party. As soon as we become known in, in a country, we're the file-sharing party. But going from there to being the civil liberties party, that's hard work. It took us two and a half years to get there. Being anti-censorship, being pro-reporters' rights, being pro-reporters' right to protect their sources, being against wiretapping, want-on wiretapping. It takes time. It takes perseverance. But then again, we're not politicians because we think it's a quick career move. We're politicians because we feel we have to. And this places us in a, in a, actually in a quite funny situation in uh, election campaigns because we, we find ourselves fighting for journalists' rights. And journalists are discovering this. In the last election campaign, in the last couple of weeks before the election, then the Associate, association of reporters sent out press releases supporting our policy. In essence, we're not that far from being a journalist's party. And that's not really a bad situation to be in in an election campaign. And last but not least, have fun. We're, we need to choose to have fun along the way because we'll be in this for a long time. The world isn't changed overnight, but I feel that it's worth it for me personally and that it's something I cannot, it's a fight I cannot choose to ignore. So I need to choose to have fun along the way. And it's not just for me personally. It's also for the good of the movement because people will go to other people who are having fun. If you're bored, people will ignore you. If you're having fun and laughing, people will join you. 
We were even discussing this as part of our parliamentary strategy before, before the past election, when we were preparing to enter parliament, which we unfortunately didn't, but that's a separate story. As we would have so fun in parliament, it would be part of basically psychological warfare against the other parties, who were, who were just bickering among themselves, trying to, to outmaneuver one another, and we would just laugh and have fun as much as we could. Well, as a side effect, we would be enjoying ourselves. That's not bad. Having fun while changing the world isn't the worst thing you can do, especially not while changing it for the better. I have one final thing to ask of you. One final thing. Forty years from now, it's quite likely that the Pirate Party movement and Pirate Parties all over the world will consist of career politicians. The founders of the Green Movement sometimes bump into me and other, le and other leaders and founders of Pirate Parties and they're, they're treating us like, like their sons and daughters because they see in our passion, in our ideals, that we are fighting to make the world a better place just like they did 40 years ago. We're carrying on their legacy. We're carrying on the cycles of history. So I have uh, something to ask of you. In 40 years, those of us who are still around, it's likely that a couple of young spoiled brats will want everything for free all over again. Help them. Help them succeed, just like we did. That's it. Uh, I was right, and I, uh, if anything, I'm going to double down, okay? Uh, because there was the faction within the, the progressive movement that said, no, 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 play nice. Uh, the Democrats uh, need to be supported, and if you just, you know, uh, you know, support them enough and you cheerlead for them, uh, they will deliver and they'll win and they'll do this and they'll do that. Well, they didn't and they lost, okay? And so I, the right idea is not to keep supporting Democrats just because they're Democrats, because they got a D next to their name. Look, the system is corrupt. It has corrupted the Democratic Party. Right now, I think their role is to keep on losing to the Republicans. They're playing the Washington generals. Uh, that's their role. Uh, and, and I'm not going to support the Democrats. If anything, I'm going to attack the Democrats 10 times more, okay? Because you're, if you're waiting on this Democratic Party to come to the rescue, you're waiting on a terribly false hope, okay? Now, it's not to say that the Republicans are good. I need you to have a little bit of logic. I can't have you sitting there go, oh, he doesn't like the Democrats, he doesn't like the Republicans. No, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> you know I don't like the Republicans. I think the Republicans are a wholly owned subsidiary of multinational corporations and the richest people and the most powerful people in the country. The Republicans are useless. We all already know that. But if you're hoping against hope that Obama will do the right thing and the Democratic Party will do the right thing, well, that hope got extinguished tonight, okay? It's over. They don't know what the hell they're doing, and they got clobbered. The right answer was to fight. The right answer was to kick the Republican ass. But they were never going to give you that answer because their role wasn't that. It was to lose because the system is so awash with money 
that the money has bought everything, including the Democratic Party, and they've set them up as patsies. And if wishing against wish, your wishes that they're going to come through is not going to work for you. Tear them down, okay? That doesn't mean replace them with Republicans. It means in primaries you have to run real progressives who are going to go after these guys. It means you work towards it. Now, don't wait for a politician. Work towards fundamental changes of the system. And fundamental changes, campaign finance reform, first of all, okay? As long as the lobbyists pay these politicians, they will buy them. They will buy them all. They will buy the Republicans, and they will buy the Democrats, and they already have. Then number two, corporations are not human beings. If you give them the rights of human beings, First Amendment rights, the right to uh, spend money and buy politicians, they will do it. They're not immoral. They're amoral. It is their job to go get a good investment. And a United States senator is an excellent investment. You pay a nickel and you get billions back. Okay? They are amoral machines. And you have to fight that. They are not human beings. They should not have the same constitutional rights that we have. Number three, when you talk about you know, uh, the senators and congressmen and presidents and their staff going to get jobs afterwards as lobbyists and cashing in, well, then that, and generals too, by the way, that gives them tremendous incentive to sell us out so they can cash in later, as Chris Dodd is about to do, the senator from Connecticut, as almost every retired guy from the Pentagon does by going to work for a defense contractor. Here's my new proposal. Here's what we do. If you worked in the government, either as staff or as a congressman, senator, or a colonel or a general, you're banned from working for those companies for 10 years. They'll say, oh, no, but how do I get rich? Well, you're not supposed to get rich. You're supposed to serve us. You're supposed to be our representatives. The point of there isn't to go get rich and rob us. No, you're banned for 10 years. If you don't want it, don't take the job. Don't become a colonel. Don't become a general. Don't become a senator. There'll be other people who'll take the job. If we don't go for that fundamental change, the Democrats, along with the Republicans, will rob you blind as they're doing right now. Forget the Democrats. Certainly forget the Republicans. We have to start doing it on our own. And if any politician doesn't agree with that, rip them down, man. Rip them down. And I don't care what party they're in. You have to have primaries. And, you, and that's the whole point of primaries. If the bums don't do what you want and they're not doing it, throw their ass out. And now it's time for another edition of What Would Jello Do? And this edition is for you, the voters. And that means I think everybody should be voters. Granted, some people say, why bother when we get nothing but coin-operated cartoon characters for the, you know, controlled by corporations for the big high offices. That's not the reason to vote. Local elections are where it's at. It matters who's mayor. It matters who's on city councils, aldermen, board of supervisors, whatever you call it. County commissioners, state legislatures, and of course nobody better than the religious right knows how important it is to have the right people on the school board. Well, I believe in insurrection in the street insurrection in the voting booth as well as insurrection with how we spend our money and what corporate creditors we choose not to give it to and you don't get real change without all three working with each other at once so occupy the voting booth too and show up pay attention to those ballot initiatives and vote smart and this means i don't vote anarchy i don't consider myself a pure anarchist let alone a libertarian or anything 
With voting, I vote on what makes sense to me, issue by issue. Well, why vote? I take pride in not voting. And, the, and I had my heart broken voting for hope and change and getting Barack Obama instead. What do we vote for? Who do we vote for? Well, forget the top-down thing that all that matters is the president and you vote on who you can best stomach seeing on TV night after night for the next four years or who is best disguises what an asshole they are. No, people to vote for aren't necessarily coin-operated Democrats or coin-operated Republicans. Therefore, that is why I continue to be registered with the Green Party. And I don't have my, I can't find my t-shirt from the New Mexico Greens, looks so cool. So you get a coffee cup instead from the Green Party <laughs> in Tennessee, okay? Be green, do green, vote green, and we don't mean Wall Street green, we mean 99% clean up our planet, clean up the election system green. That's why. And, and even if you're a little weird about joining a third party or feel like the Greens don't have their act together because they're not in the news all the time, we keep winning local offices and wouldn't you rather vote for something you want and not get it than vote for something you don't want and get it? Either way, you must register to vote in order to do these things. If 1% of people vote green and are registered green, more importantly, yes, registered green, it means that there's a party line on the ballot for a Green Party candidate for every office, possibly even you. And the reason to run candidates like this is to bring new ideas and important things into the debate when all the corporate McNews clowns want to talk about is whether we should go back to contraceptions or make war on Iran or uh, how much of a tax break should Wall Street really get in case it tinkles down to the rest of us. So again, this is part of taking things back and occupying our system. Register, vote, show up, pay attention to the local issues. Because after all, I would rather work or vote for something I want and not get it than work or vote on something I don't want and get it. Two years ago, the Green Party in Lambeth, when we had a monthly meeting, was about four or five people sitting around in a pub. Uh, that's what it was like, and we were you know, trying to work out what we might be able to do efficiently. And then Scott and I got together, we started campaigning uh, just a bit south of here in St. Leonard's Ward. And we, one night over a few drinks, we thought, you know what, we could probably, um, we could probably get a council seat here or two. And we came up with this crackpot idea that if we put out four newsletters, uh, over the course of a year, we'd probably get elected as councillors. And we had a go at it, we started to do it, and then we realised uh, that it was going to take a long time and a lot more effort than that. And uh, it was just me and Scott, we went around and we found we could deliver our area uh, in about four days if we did seven hours delivering a day over a four day period. So that's what, 28, 38 hours of stuffing, letters through letter boxes. Uh, we could deliver the ward and we start to do that and then we realized that if we had two more people uh, We could do it in half the time who knew <laughs> And so we looked around for a couple more people and people started to come forward people I'm looking around the room like Marie and came and started to help us deliver uh, And more and more people joined us uh, and then by the time of the election 
uh, on election morning, we had uh, something like 26 people who came out with us, and we delivered the whole ward, not in four days, but in one and a half hours. And we realised that if everyone just gives an hour, an hour and a half, two hours, we can make a huge impact. Now, we had to, back in May, we had to go around and beg family and friends to help us out and manage to deliver the ward in 26 hours. Now, when we have an action day, and we're having action days every weekend now between now and the election, the last few action days, we've had just 26, 28, 30 people come. And we haven't just done the whole ward, which is where Scott got elected. We've done you know, next door ward as well, because we've had so many people. And we just need you to give uh, an hour and a half when you can, just on a Saturday morning. Just come, take some leaflets, go out and deliver them. And just to give you an idea, Labour, who have 59 seats on the council out of 63, 59 out of 63, would struggle to get a group like this together and have a meal. They will struggle to get 30 people out uh, on a Saturday morning to do it. We have that. We have as much as Labour, who have 59 seats on the council here. If you can just come, for example, this Saturday in Tiles Hill or in uh, Saturday after next, in Brixton Hill, just come along on a Saturday morning or a Saturday afternoon, just do an hour and a half delivering. Um, that's all that's required for us to make a huge impact in Lambeth, and it's quite exciting. The Greens, in terms of their strategy, in terms of what they actually believe is a long-term vision, their policies don't really exclude anyone. They are probably the most inclusive group of people I've come across. My name is Becca Thackeray. And what to do? I work in Brixton Prison as a nurse, and I'm a magistrate. And when did you join the Green Party? In the summer of 2005, I wanted to get involved with something local. I went to the Green Party store and the Lambeth Country Show, and the first thing that caught my eye was the, the Green Party. And I found that they talked in a way that wasn't gimmicky, wasn't trying to hide behind anything beyond being a human being. Jonathan said we have realised that with, um, you know, I'm looking around and I'm seeing some familiar faces who turned up and gave an hour or two hours of the time. It does make a huge difference and we can make a huge difference and this is really once in a lifetime opportunity, I think, for the Green Search right now. There was something maybe 20 odd years ago when the SDLP separated from the Liberals and there was that, there was a bit of a shake-up in British politics. I believe that that shake-up is happening again right now. So what I would encourage you to do is to, um, you know, you've obviously felt compelled enough to join the Green Party or to become a supporter of the Green Party or even just come along tonight to be a bit more curious about the Green Party. But um, if you could then over the next four months, really, really look at your timetable and just think, actually, given that this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, what can I do to help you? And really, it can be anything that you're passionate about. Yeah, sure, it's about delivering leaflets, it's about knocking on doors, it's about getting people to sign petitions. But, you know, if there are, there are some people, I met people on the climate march who were passionate about um, animal, uh, animal welfare and the, the effect that the dairy industry is having on um, our economy. They want to screen a film. Now she's gone ahead and she's done that. We've been able to facilitate that with help through, um, through Tim giving a lot of support. So if there's something that you're passionate about, if there's a bee in your bonnet that you want to 
that, that you think this is this is the time to do it and we will support you in whatever way we can and we would just ask well that caramel does look very <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> There's a couple of things in life that distract me tremendously. That's one of them. My name is Adam. I'm a web developer and I joined the Green Party last month. I joined because I started seeing what Caroline Lucas, the Green Party's MP, has been doing, and I think she's absolutely brilliant. And I looked more into the Green Party and saw that they have a set of underlying principles which I completely agree with. They look after people first and foremost. Um, and they look after the environment and they understand that those two go hand in hand. Um, my name is Esme and I work for charities on campaigns. Um, when did you join the Green Party? Um, I joined the Green Party about three weeks ago at Christmas time. What inspired you to join? I joined the Green Party because I was fed up of moaning about consumerism, the environment, the fact that one percent of the population owns all the wealth in the UK and across the world, um, and I've actually realised that there is a way to change that, and the Green Party just offers that, and um, I just feel really excited to be part of something that actually might be changed. Um, so yeah, that's what I've joined. I'm a teacher, a secondary school teacher. Uh, I just joined the Green Party recently, uh, just before Christmas, a couple of months ago. And I joined because I think that the environment and social justice are the two most important things in life that uh, none of the other parties seem to worry about. And um, the Green Party seems to be uh, made up of a bunch of people who actually seem to care about things other than just how much money they've got. That's it. So what's your name? My name's Tony. And uh, what do you do? I'm currently unemployed. And when did you join the Green Party? I joined um, at the last election, so I worked for Green and I decided to join as a member. I just felt that, you know, it's about time that, you know, the Green Party had a chance to make a difference for everyone. And I just feel these parties that we've been given as options don't work. And I think, you know, the public just need to um, consider the Green Party as an option. My name is Rachel Darcy and I am a singer and a songwriter and I also play the ukulele. And when did you join the Green Party? Literally, just, literally in the last couple of days I um, I walked into a Green Party event by accident. I was visiting my friend Betty who owns Art and Bow on um, Atlantic Road and there were lots of people in there and it was strange. And it turned out that it was a uh, Green Party meeting and then I decided to stay and I thought it was, you know, it seemed like then no I thought I'd get, you know, stuck in. The only grown-up solution that there is, a grown-up mature democracy, is to let's start addressing the resources that we have in the world, the allocation of those resources, the exploitation of people throughout the world and in our own country. And let's properly redress this balance. Let's not be like the Labour Party or the Lib Dems or the Conservatives that are, are different shades of grey. Let's we need something radical. And we have something radical in the Greens. That's why I joined the Greens. That's why I'm staying with the Greens. That's why I'm, I'm proud to be a councillor for the Greens and I will work very, very hard to ensure that we do everything for the common
Living systems have been around for a few billion years, and will be around for many more. In the living world, there's no landfill. Instead, materials flow. One species' waste is another's food, energy is provided by the sun, things grow, then die, and nutrients return to the soil safely. And it works. Yet as humans, we've adopted a linear approach. We take we make and we dispose. A new phone comes out, so we ditch the old one. Our washing machine packs up, so we buy another. Each time we do this, we're eating into a finite supply of resources and often producing toxic waste. It simply can't work long term. So what can? If we accept that the living world's cyclical model works, can we change our way of thinking so that we too operate a circular economy? Let's start with the biological cycle. How can our waste build capital rather than reduce it? By rethinking and redesigning products and components and the packaging they come in, we can create safe and compostable materials that help grow more stuff. As they say in the movies, no resources have been lost in the making of this material. So what about the washing machines, mobile phones, fridges? We know they don't biodegrade. Here, we're talking about another sort of rethink. A way to cycle valuable metals, polymers and alloys, so they maintain their quality and continue to be useful beyond the shelf life of individual products. What if the goods of today became the resources of tomorrow? It makes commercial sense. Instead of the throw away and replace culture we've become used to, we'd adopt a return and renew one, where products and components are designed to be disassembled and regenerated. One solution may be to rethink the way we view ownership. What if we never actually owned our technologies? We simply licensed them from the manufacturers. 
Now, let's put these two cycles together. Imagine if we could design products to come back to their makers, their technical materials being reused and their biological parts increasing agricultural value. And imagine that these products are made and transported using renewable energy. Here we have a model that builds prosperity long term. And the good news is, there are already companies out there who are beginning to adopt this way of working. But the circular economy isn't about one manufacturer changing one product. It's about all the interconnecting companies that form our infrastructure and economy coming together. It's about energy. It's about rethinking the operating system itself. We have a fantastic opportunity to open new perspectives and new horizons. Instead of remaining trapped in the frustrations of the present, with creativity and innovation, we really can rethink and redesign our future. Johnson got the big promotion. That's too bad. Well, maybe if you try harder next time. It's no use. I worked extra hard on our proposal, and Johnson took credit for all of my effort. Well, nice guys do finish last in free market capitalism. Here we go again with the pinko talk. All I'm saying is capitalism rewards the kind of antisocial behavior that Mr. Johnson is exhibiting. So what's the alternative then? Centrally planned socialism? Of course not. Centrally planned socialism has a proven history of giving disproportionate power to the coordinator class, resulting in inequality. Right. So while capitalism may have its weak points, it still is the best option for a fair economy. Well, there is another option. What other option? I'm talking about participatory economics. Participatory economics? Sounds like another one of your commie plots. Participatory economics, or Paracon for short, is an economic system that eliminates the grossly uneven distribution of wealth we have in the United States, while also giving people incentives to work together instead of stabbing people in the back to get ahead. Sure, as long as we listen to orders handed down from the Kremlin. Not so. Paracon is a system of democracy, where everyone has a voice in decisions in an equal proportion to how much the decision will affect them. Really? That's right. Paracon's core values are equality, solidarity, diversity, and self-management. All right, I'll bite. How does Paracon work? Paracon is made up of several principles and institutions. Workers and consumers councils, balanced job complexes, remuneration according to effort and sacrifice, and participatory planning. Everyone in a Paracon system belongs to a workers council where they work and a consumers council where they live. In participatory economics, no one person owns businesses or means of production. They're owned by society. So in every workplace, decisions about how work is done and who carries out which tasks are all decided collectively, not by a boss or a manager. The same is true in your neighborhood. Decisions about how to use the city's resources are made by all those who will be affected by the decision. So I can have Joe Blue from across town deciding what kind of flowers I have in my backyard, right? No, Clarence. Like I said before, 
Everyone has a voice in decisions proportionate to how greatly they will be affected by that decision. Here's an example. Let's say you want to put a picture of me on your desk. But I don't. Alright, let's say you want to put a picture of Lindsay Lohan on your desk. Okay, I can see that. Now is that a decision that needs to be approved by the entire workplace? No, because the decision affects only you. Having the entire workplace decide is unfair and inefficient. But let's say you want to put a loud radio on your desk. I like Metallica. I know you do. Now that is a decision that not only affects you, but affects those around your desk as well. So in the decision, some of your colleagues would have some say as well. So Joe can't tell me what kind of flowers I can have in the backyard? Only if he uses the backyard also. Because I like tulips. Great. In Paracon, balanced job complexes are the way in which work tasks are made equal for everyone, even across workplaces. Workers' councils who are familiar with the type of work done in their workplace give every task that is done in the workplace a rating, based on the amount of effort that is required to complete the task, how fun or empowering the task is, or how uncomfortable or even dangerous the task is. The ratings for the tasks that one worker is responsible for completing are averaged so that the list of tasks, or job, is given a rating. Within a workplace, tasks are divided up so that everyone has a fair share of empowering tasks and tasks that are not empowering. This is also done across workplaces. Some workplaces, such as the coal mine, have an average work rating that is lower than others. Across society, all of these work ratings are averaged to give an average work empowerment rating for all of society. Tasks across workplaces are then divided up so that no one in society has an uneven share of empowering tasks. How does that work if I work in an ice cream store and Joe works in a coal mine? Well, Joe wouldn't work in the coal mine every day. Sometimes Joe might work in the ice cream store and you might work in the coal mine. But I don't know anything about coal mines. People would still have jobs that they are trained for, but everyone would have an equal share of tasks that weren't fun. That brings us to the next principle, remuneration for effort. In our current system, some people have jobs that require a lot less effort than others. In Paracon, balanced job complexes would change this. In Paracon, everyone has a balanced workload, so everyone is also paid a standard rate. You wouldn't earn more money because the ice cream store you work at makes the most popular ice cream. You would earn money only based on how much effort you use to make the ice cream. So if you wanted to earn more, the only way would be to put in extra hours at the ice cream store. But likewise, if you decided you didn't need as much to get by, you could decide to work less hours if time off was more valuable to you. Participatory planning would make the economy run more efficiently than it does now. Workers and consumers' councils work together to estimate the supply and demand of every product in the economy. Prices are then adjusted properly. They are not set artificially high or low, as can happen in market capitalism. Prices will be adjusted so that they reflect their actual costs on society. How is that different than capitalism? Take gasoline, for example. In our current system, the cost of gasoline, as high as it may be, does not factor in the costs on society that the pollution created by the gasoline will incur. The pollution is an externality that neither the producer nor the consumer of the gasoline is paying for. In a Paracon system, all of this would be adjusted so that the products will have their external costs on society properly reflected in their price. Well, all this sounds well and good, but it seems like there are just a lot of issues that you haven't addressed, besides the fact that I don't see how a system like this could ever be implemented. Well, it may interest you to know that there are many businesses out there that have implemented the Paracon model within their workplace. 
You can read about how they are making it work at Paracon.org, where you can also find out more specific information about how Paracon works. That sounds great, but I'm just a cartoon character. That's true. That's why it's up to you, kids. That's right, kids. It's up to you to implement new economic systems. If you want to learn more about participatory economics, have an adult help you go to Paracon.org to find out more information about this revolutionary new economic model. Hello, I'm Michael Tillinger, and I'm the founder of the Ubuntu Liberation Movement. Welcome to the launch of our new strategy and plan of action, which we call One Small Town Can Change the World. So, what is our plan? First, we find a small town of around 5,000 people who want to participate in their own makeover, their own salvation, their own rescue mission. Then we find consensus between the people, the mayor, the council. We identify the special skills and talents of the people. We identify the industrial and environmental potential of the town. Then we develop a razor-sharp business plan for a variety of community projects to match these skills and individual potential. These projects are actually meticulously well-planned businesses. But there is one huge difference between these and other businesses. These belong to all the people of the town, together with the investors that made it possible. Everyone in our town who participates in the transformation will contribute three hours per week towards one of these new projects. This creates a powerful free labor force that no other corporation can compete with. Then comes a really critical part of our plan, we analyze how much our town needs to consume of everything we produce. And then we produce at least three times as much as we need. We can do this with ease because our cooperative labor force. Everything we produce is distributed freely to everyone who participates. And the other two thirds are sold on the open market to our neighboring towns and cities or even exported if need be. But herein lies the twist. We sell whatever we produce cheaper than any other supplier. How is this possible? Because of our free labor force and the ingredients that we supply ourselves. And so, in a strange twist of fate, money will become the tool that destroys capitalism. It becomes clear that contributionism devours capitalism wherever it may be. This will lead to a substantial income stream from all our projects very quickly. From food to technology, healthcare to music, tourism to engineering and so much more that would not be possible in a capitalist model. Why? Because it would simply not be financially viable. Set your imagination free and imagine how much wealth our little town will create from just 50 new projects. But what do we do with all this money? We keep it simple, as we always should. One third goes to the investors or the farmers or the factory owners that turn their businesses into a community project. One third goes to upgrading and maintaining and constantly creating new projects based on the needs and skills of the people. And the last third is distributed equally to everyone who participates in the projects. This provides for an elegant and simple transition phase. 
no one has to leave their job because everyone has three hours a week. And very soon, the people of our town will be receiving more money from community projects than their jobs while getting most of the things we need to live for free. As this abundance begins to grow and our town becomes wealthy beyond comprehension, new projects will start up every week, giving expression to the creative talents of our people. One by one, the people who work for the mines and other dangerous industries will leave their jobs because they earn more money and benefits from contributing only three hours per week. And without any resistance, opposition or conflict, the nasty corporations will close because nobody will work there anymore. And the existing system will simply shut down and fade from our memory as we create a new system and a new social structure. At this point we realize that we don't need money at all. And yet we have more money now than we've ever had before. Everyone will know that money does nothing and people do everything. And so in a strange twist of fate, we use the tools that enslave us to free us from that slavery and build an unshakable foundation in which the tools of enslavement have no more effect. There has never been a simpler way to unite the people and create abundance and prosperity for everyone. And there has never been a more lucrative investment opportunity to conscious millionaires to participate in creating a true utopian future for everyone. So, which will be the first small town to start the domino effect? Just one small town that'll change the world. Why not yours? This video condenses the anarcho-communalism of Murray Bookchin, found in his book Free Cities, Communalism and the Left, 2009, his final work. Bookchin describes communalism as a form of organization which, quote, seeks to create popular assemblies as vital decision-making arenas for civic life, end quote. This video provides Bookchin's view of how anarcho-communalism addresses six aspects of society. 1. Order. 2. Market. 3. Property. 4. Structure. 5. Decision-making. 6. Means of production. Order. Bookchin says, quote, we would enjoy freedoms, or rights, but we would also have responsibilities, or duties. He objects to individual autonomy exercised without reference to social responsibilities. Market. Bookchin favours, quote, the sharing of goods according to a truly libertarian view, end quote, rather than an exchange of surplus goods or anything like commodity purchase or exchange. Property. Under Bookchin's communalism, property, quote, will be municipalized and its overall management placed in the hands of popular assemblies, end quote. He differentiates this from nationalization, collectivization and privatization. Structure. Bookchin says, quote, communalists seek to create a democratic collectivist social order, end quote. Popular assemblies manage commonly owned property and administration is coordinated by, quote, confederal committees whose members are the responsible voices of the popular assemblies, end quote. 
Bookchin's communalism, quote, requires a written constitution and, yes, regulatory laws to avoid a structurelessness that would yield mindless anarchy, end quote. Decision-making. Bookchin's communalism requires that, quote, each individual would act with full regard for the needs of all, and that democracy decidedly includes the rights of a dissenting minority to freely and fully express itself, end quote. Individual assemblies confederate with each other, and, quote, the popular decisions of the entire confederation are taken as a single assembly, end quote. Means of production. Bookchin argues for, quote, a system of usufruct based entirely on one's needs and citizenship in a community, end quote. Under this system of common ownership, quote, no one individual controls, much less owns, the means of production and of life, end quote. Bookchin's communalism, therefore, starts with small municipal communities which confederate in order to scale up and which use direct democracy to make decisions. Finally, I'd like to thank my generous patrons. The boots are on. Elias Aspig, Chloe, Duran Barnett, Alexander Curzon, Sean A. Young, Andy Chaos, TBLTP, Thors, Fake Name, Niels Rethlin, and Judge Sabo. Please contact me if I ever pronounce your name incorrectly. 